find the book of Colossians, chapter 4. We'll finish what has been a nine-week study through the letter of Paul to the church in Colossae. We'll begin next week sort of a a multi-part look at the book of Genesis. And I'm very excited to dive in and look at that with you all. A couple things while you're finding uh, the book of Colossians. First, thank you to those who serve in all of our various ministries. For those that are going to be serving Wednesday night, we really are excited about all of that. And I want to give a personal thank you. And also a thank you to those who give to continue to support uh, this ministry. Those who, who have done that have been an incredibly generous in the time of, of a pandemic, and we're thankful for that. And also, we're also thankful for the way that the Lord is at work in our congregation. We'll actually be having a baptism next week of, uh, of Cheyenne. So we're very excited. Cheyenne will be baptized next week. So y'all want to be here for that. But the Lord's at work even in the midst of a pandemic. It's almost like he's in control or something, right? It's almost like he knows exactly what he's doing. So I'm excited about that. And let's look together. Colossians chapter 4. We'll begin looking in verse 2 and read to the end of the book, verse 18. So let's look together. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of God. Who's in charge changes everything. 
I'll tell you, that's been true for every job I've ever had. My most recent work environment was one where I think this is clearly seen. And I first started this job, I was fresh out of college. I thought I knew everything, and turns out I didn't know hardly anything. And I start this job, and it's my first big boy job, and I'm scared to death. I go in there, and it wasn't long until I realized that I was in over my head. My boss, when I started, God bless him, was at times simply scary to work for. If there was even the tiniest mistake made, no matter how tiny or insignificant, he would fly off the handle. Sometimes for no really noticeable or or reason I could ever discern, he was known to throw things across the room. He would curse us out on a regular basis. And I once asked him what sort of he thought about leadership. And he said one of the things he wanted to be remembered for as a leader was that he wanted to be feared. And I can tell you one thing, he succeeded. He did a great job of having us fear him. And that boss retired, praise God, right? And a new boss came in a few years after I'd started and rebuilt the culture of an office that was initially rooted in fear and gave us an environment that wasn't easy but was joyful to work for. See, joy and difficulty are not opposed to one another. You can have an easy job and be miserable. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. You can have a very easy job that you're miserable, and you can have a difficult job and be joyful while you do it. And the one who is the boss often determines the difference. I'm here to tell you that Jesus is the kind of boss of your life who can make the difficult walk of Christian discipleship truly a joy. I want to say outright that the Christian life is not easy. Being a follower of Jesus and and following after him will not make your life better. It never will. It won't be this side of heaven. And anyone who tells you that you can have a crown without a cross doesn't know what they're talking about. But that doesn't mean that the difficult life of Christian discipleship isn't a joy. It doesn't have joy in it and and isn't worthy of of the walk. In our passage this morning, we're diving into sort of an extended discussion Paul was having of what it means for Jesus to be the boss. Of our life. And Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 is sort of the banner over this last section. You can turn back a page and look there. Look what he says. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He spent the first two chapters of the book of Colossians basically telling us that Jesus is Lord and explaining his lordship over these things. And then in chapter 3 and 4, here to the close of the letter, he wants to tell us how do we live in light of that? How do we live in light of the fact that Jesus is the boss? And last week, he brought Jesus' lordship to bear on our homes and our workplaces. You can catch that, that message online if you happen to miss that. But this week, he wants to conclude with having us think about one area We're prone to forget in the midst of a pandemic our relationships, our friendships, our our neighbors, even just people we know and interact with. How do we live with and love our neighbors since Jesus is Lord? How do we live and, and love our friends since Jesus is Lord? How does that change that? He offers us five commands for us. You can follow on the notes on the back of your bulletin. He commands us five, five ways to seek to be faithful in our relationships in Jesus as Lord. First, he wants us to ground our horizontal relationships 
with one another in our vertical relationship to God. Look at verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. In other words, he says, faithful relationships require us to be prayerful. To be prayerful. Paul is asking for prayer for himself as an apostle and a missionary, but he reaches it wide beyond him. He says, we're to be a prayerful people, and he says to be steadfast in it, to be watchful in it, to be alert in it, and to be thankful in it. It gives us, I think, both a gravity, a sense of how important seeking God is, an urgency, a heaviness, but also a gladness of joy, thanksgiving, elation. Does this mark our prayer life? And then Paul gives us a prayer request. Isn't it encouraging that the Apostle Paul had prayer needs? And here's what he says, verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. He says this prayerfulness was both for his personal needs as he's in prison, but also for the sake of others. Paul said, pray for an opportunity, an open door for me to preach the gospel to someone. Paul says, pray for the ability to declare the word of God, even from prison. And he says, pray for clarity, that he may speak as he ought to speak. And honestly, if you could add verses to pray for your pastor, I'd put these there. If you could pray these for me, pray these even for one another. I even have an opportunity this week to, this upcoming week to share. I've got an appointment to share, a, to share the gospel with, with, with someone in the community. I would love prayer that we can all speak clearly the gospel of grace. And we'll take opportunity as we have ability to do that. Whether it's with church members here, with our children, whether it's with our friends, our neighbors, we will never see God move as we'd like until we are moved to pray. And so friends, we need to be prayerful to pray this for ourselves, pray this for the leadership here, pray this for one another. We must be prayerful. Next, he turns from what we pray to how we live. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. In other words, he said, be prayerful. Now he says, be wise. Be wise in how you walk in your relationships with others. And he's he's particularly concerned with how we use our time. Wisdom would call us to consider how we use our time, especially he says, walk in wisdom, he says, toward outsiders. Now, that may sound like kind of a cold term to us, but really it's just speaking of those who are outside the church, outside the community of faith, the lost, the neighbors out in our community. The literal translation would be those who are without. Those who are without Christ, without the gospel, without hope. He said, live with wisdom for their sake. Live with wisdom for those who are without. And your translation may even read this. He says, Be wise, walk in wisdom toward those who are without, making the best use of the time. Your your translation may say, redeem the time. Redeem the time, which I think is a great way of saying what Paul is trying to say here. He's saying that we need to, to buy up our time and make it work for us. Take it for ransom. Consider the popular Latin phrase, carpe diem, right? Seize the day. 
and make your time work. We all know how a day can get away from us. Just a few minutes on the phone, playing a game, and all of a sudden, it's bedtime again. Or just a couple episodes on Netflix, and then I'll do the homework. And then it's tomorrow. How did that happen? How did that happen? Or we go and we're like, I'm just going to take a little cat nap, and I'm not going to need the alarm. I'll get up on my own. The kids will wake me up, the dog, the cat, something, something will wake me up. And we wake up and we wonder if we're even still in 2020 anymore, right? We're like, where am I? What happened? So this text isn't telling us that naps or being on our phones are necessarily bad, but it is warning about the danger of being unwise and in particularly unintentional with our time, of not thinking about how we use our time and how can we best use it. Let me give you three questions. These are in your notes. You can sort of think about these first. What is most important? What's most important? This is a huge question and not one with an easy answer, but that's why Scripture can help us guide and think about these things. What does is, what, what is the Scripture call us to value most? In college, I probably would have never survived without reading a book called What's Best Next by a guy named Matt Herman, he was the assistant to John Piper and kind of managed his schedule, his traveling, how he was spending his time. And the book was birthed out of a concern to live this passage out faithfully. How do I maximize my time for the glory of God? And he says it comes down to a simple but profound question, what's best next? What's most important? Obviously, we should consider what the Bible has to say about loving God first and loving neighbor second, right? That these are the two greatest commandments. These should guide us of how we think about our time. That we should consider, he says, while you're doing that, consider those who are without Christ. Consider our neighbors. Do we think about them? Do we think about them as people without hope potentially in this world? Have we ever thought about how to engage our neighbors, not just, in, not just in regular conversation about the weather or the lawn or politics, but in gospel conversation? And even more than that, are we mindful for how we walk, how we live all of our life? Do we do so with wisdom before them? How do we spend our time around our neighbors do, do we seek to make the most? Maybe we start a conversation with them. Do we seek to make the most and ask if you watched our Wednesday night video a few weeks ago? We talked about five simple questions you can begin to ask somebody. What's your spiritual belief? Hey, do you go to church? The simple things you can begin to learn more about that person and to begin to maybe engage in some deeper conversation than, hey, how about that game the other day? And the great thing is, because we're in a pandemic, there is nothing going on. So what else do you have to talk about with them, right? So what is most important? Consider that as we interact. Second, what's most time-consuming? What's most time-consuming? Have you ever heard the question, how do you eat an elephant? What's the answer? One bite at a time, right? You take it piece by piece. So many of us don't use our time well because we make two fundamental mistakes. First, we try to do too many things at once. Too many things at once. Peter Drucker, who is sort of a, a, a time management guru, he, he's, I think he's completely secular, so this isn't a Christian book, but he wrote a book called The Effective Executive. And his principle, I think, though, was wise and biblical. 
Here's what he says. He says, effective executives put first things first and do one thing at a time. You cannot be expected to do your best work being constantly interrupted by texts, Facebook, or seeking to multitask. As if any of us could actually do that. Friends, God is the only being in the world who can multitask and you ain't him. We shouldn't seek to try to do that and try to constantly try to do all these things that might be in front of us. The second mistake is putting off big projects. Unless they are important, tiny or simple tasks can wait second to the more time-consuming project that you're focused in on. Many emails can wait. Friends, there's many texts you get and messages you can get that you might be able to wait an hour to respond back to. We have so built things into our culture that make us feel like I have to respond to them right away when it's not important right now. There's something more important right here in front of me. Finish the big project with all your focus and attention then turn to other things. So many of us don't live with wisdom for our neighbors because we're so distracted by tons of smaller, less important things going on out in the world. Focus. (laughs) He says, focus. Ask yourself, what is most time-consuming? Third, what can only you do? Or what can only I do? Ask yourself that. What can only I do? Proximity and ability are important. Consider, you may be able to serve and reach your neighbor in a way the pastor can't. One, because you may be able to help them. Maybe there's a tangible need they have. Maybe you have a skill or an interest that will help you to bridge a gap with them. Or simply because you live close enough to them to see something that many of us can't see. I know it might shock you to know, but I don't know everything about everybody. And that's never going to (laughs) happen. But you know a lot more about the people you live around, right? And so you can use that time because you live in in proximity to them to ask, what can I do? To be wise with our time, we need to consider the important the time-consuming, and our proximity and ability. And by answering these questions, I believe we can be wise and redeem the time and make it work for us, and more importantly, for the sake of those who are without Christ today. Paul's concern, though, is with more than just our time. He now turns to talk about our speech, and particularly he wants our speech to be salty. There's your next point. So be prayerful, be wise, and third point, Be salty. Look at verse 6. Look what he says. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Speech that is gracious is both about what we speak and about the tone we use, but also about the content. That we should be grace-centered, yes, in the way we speak to other people and forgiving other people and being careful not to take a harsh, sharp tone. But I think often we think of gracious speech as speech that never stirs anyone up. And if that's the case, then Jesus was often not very gracious. Hear this. Speech that is salty, the sort of speech the Bible calls us to have, is speech that impacts. It's speech that gets the point across in an effective way. It is speech that's willing to provoke and prod, not out of rudeness or pride, but with a purpose. You can write this down. Salty speech is purposed speech. Salty speech, it's speech with a purpose aimed at a goal to get something across to someone else. 
Nobody just puts salt on something for no reason. They've got a purpose in it. And Jesus often told parables that I think were very salty. Here's one of my favorites. He told a parable about a man who built a vineyard and leased it to a group of tenants. And the man went away to another country. But once the time for harvesting the fruits from the vineyard had come, he sent his servant to the tenants. And the tenants killed the servant, and they kept killing more servants that he sent afterward. Finally, the man said, okay, I'm going I'm to send my son to go and, and to claim these fruits because they'll recognize my son. And then the servants, out of greed, killed the son. And then the parable, every parable that Jesus has has a punchline. Almost like a here's the point I'm wanting to illustrate for you. Here's almost how the punchline of a joke swells to a, to a moment where the point gets across. He says every parable Jesus tells has a punchline. And the punchline was that the kingdom of God was going to be taken away from the tenants and given to someone who could produce fruit. Jesus told this parable to an audience of the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders of the day. And he said that, hey, that you... And those who came before you thought you were serving God by killing my servant. So I'm going to take the kingdom from you and give it to these other people. So Jesus brought this punchline to them. And here's the best part of it. Matthew 21, verse 45, that follows after all these parables. You'll see it on the screen. Look what he said. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. I love it. It took them all of these parables before they figured out, he might be talking about us. (laughs) And they perceived correctly. This is salty speech. It's speech that penetrates. It gets the point across. It does so in a powerful and compelling way, not out of pride or rudeness or the sense of superiority, but out of a goal of helping them see the, the situation, the lost situation that they were in, that these Pharisees could go around and live in a world of, of religion everywhere and yet lose God. And he gets the point across. And consider even how Jesus calls us as his people to be the salt of the earth. Make an impact on this earth. Live live with a purifying presence, penetrating, powerful, impactful speech done with grace at the center is what this verse is calling for. And oh, the challenge of this, isn't it, brothers and sisters? This requires us to think carefully before we speak. And to maybe think carefully before we like, share, or comment on something that maybe we should have read up on before we shared. Or maybe, even if we're right, maybe we don't have to tell everybody all of our right opinions all the time. Jesus didn't do that. Maybe it would be wise to think some of these things through in order to live out this verse. To take time to read and formulate how we might respond to someone. And to, even if you want a helpful place to look at how to do this better, go read the book of Proverbs. It says right next to each other because the Proverbs are all about how to apply. It's all about application. The Proverbs are all these principles that says here, and you need to think about how to apply these principles. And in one verse it says, answer a fool according to his folly so you can reveal his ways, right? So there's times in which somebody's being ridiculous, you need to sort of point it out to him. Then he says, the very next verse, don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Saying, hey, maybe there's sometimes you don't got to respond to the craziness going out in the world because it's just going to drag you down in the mud with them. 
They said sometimes it might be good, and sometimes it's all about the setting to do it. So let's think about how we can be salty and gracious in our speech as, as we seek to live that way. This requires us to think carefully and to do it, he says, that we might know how we ought to answer each person. We want to be able to show someone who our hope is and to turn them from someone without hope to someone with Christ. In our relationships, we're to be prayerful, we're to be wise, we're to be salty in our speech. And then he says, fourth, to be servants, to be servants. Paul highlights, moves to highlight some specific relationships he valued, particular people who helped him along in his ministry. Look at verse 7. Tychicus, he says, will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Wouldn't you love to be remembered that way? Just stop and think about it. Hey, you're a beloved brother or sister, a, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. Wouldn't you love to be remembered that way? And Paul forever, we're going to remember Tychicus that way. I don't know anything else about him, but we remember him that way. And he goes on. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. It's likely that Tychicus and Onesimus delivered the book of Colossians for Paul to this church in Colossae. And actually, they probably delivered the companion letter of the book of Philemon, which you can also find uh, in your New Testament, very short letter that tells you more about this Onesimus guy. But Paul had more servants he, want to men- he wants to mention. He closes this book almost giving us a group photo. If you've ever taken at the end of one of those mission trips or you and your friends go on this big college trip together and all y'all take a picture at the end of it, this is sort of his way of giving you this big sort of, hey, my ministry partners together, all of us in a photo together. He writes out their names. And look at these verses with me. From 10 to verse 17. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, so that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he's worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read aloud among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. Look at all the people he highlights here. And starts talking about the Jewish brothers and sisters who comforted him from verse 10 to 12, including Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark that you have in your New Testament. He also wants you to see the service of Epaphras, who, if you remember back in chapter 1, was one of the first Christians in this church. And he's thankful for his prayer ministry, ministry that wasn't even seen or out front. He says that was so important. 
and the hard work that he did for them. He highlights Archippus and puts and wants to, hint to encourage his ministry in the Lord. And then he highlights other local churches, including uh, a church that met in Nympha's house and the Laodiceans, who were not that far from Colossae. And then we see Luke, another gospel writer, and we see Demas. Paul shows us this snapshot to show us that faithful to encourage us to meaningful relationships and that those meaningful relationships are built by servants. Built by being servants, serving one another. And I want to say thank you to those who serve in this body in any number of ways they're doing it for you, whether they serve your children, they serve the women, they serve men, whatever it is, they're serving you and trying to build this sort of relationship together. And I encourage you, if you see a volunteer today, just... Don't, can't touch them because of COVID or I tell you to give them a hug. But just tell them, thank you for serving and doing that. And he, and, and he wants to encourage you here, verse 17, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. That would be my encouragement to you, whatever your ministry is. Whether it's behind the scenes, don't think that just because you may not be seen while you serve that you're not important. The Father sees you in secret, and he says he rewards those who, doesn't, who don't seek the praises of others for how they serve. But there's also a name on this list that's a warning. There was a person who is serving alongside Paul who would not serve alongside him forever. Yes, we're to be servants. But finally, fifth, he tells us to be mindful. Be mindful. We need to be mindful. You'll see these two points on on A and B. You can sort of look at this a little more. But that even Christian relationships may end in heartbreak. Verse 14, he mentions a guy named Demas, doesn't he? Luke, the physician, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. And he mentions him in the letter to Philemon, which is a short companion letter, this. And he calls Demas a fellow Worker, And see, Demas' story doesn't end well. At least the last time we hear about Demas, things don't look good. I want you to hold your spot in Colossians, and if you could turn to the right, to the book of 2 Timothy. So if you go to the right, you'll see 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, and then 2 Timothy We get a very different snapshot if we look at 2 Timothy and we look at chapter 4. And Paul is here basically by himself in prison again. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. See this. For Demas... In love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Wow. What a warning to hear this morning. That Demas walked beside the apostles. He saw all the works they did. He was with them. He heard the message they preached. He even suffered with them. And he walked away in love with the world. Sin is nothing to play with. We don't know, was it the love of money? Was it a love for women? 
Was it a love of being popular and praised? I don't know fully what it was, but whatever it was was so important that he would trade present life and present life with Jesus for something fickle and finite and fleeting. He traded the glorious treasures of Jesus for momentary thrills. And this is what Satan wants to do to each of you. People get all freaked out when the pastor starts talking about demons and Satan. But let me tell you, there's two extremes you can have. You can have the extreme where you see a demon under every rock. And that the reason the fast food line at the McDonald's is slow is because there's a demon behind it all. I'm not so sure there. It might just be, you know, somebody having a rough day. But then there's the other extreme of thinking that there's nothing like that out there in the world. That's exactly what demons would want you to think. And I want you to plug your name in here. The forces of evil want the testimony of your life to say blank in love with this present world deserted Christ. Satan wants nothing more than for the testimony of your life to say that. Be careful. Be mindful. And this also a heads up for us. I know many of you are older than me and have probably been believers longer than me, but I'll tell you, there are demises in my life, and there will be demises in your life. If it ain't yet, I'm warning you, there will be someone who you've served alongside and who you even discipled and you poured your life into, and they just walk away. They leave it all. You can almost hear the teardrops falling on the pages of 2 Timothy, and we need to be mindful that this happens and that this will happen. We need to be sad, but not surprised when it happens. We need to mourn, but not be destroyed. And we need to turn to pray for them, love them, and seek to win them back. We don't know if Demas ever changed course. Second Timothy is Paul's last letter that he wrote. So we don't know what happens to him. But I know that if you're a Demas this morning running from God and in love with the world, your story isn't done yet because you're here. And that Jesus stands ready to receive you again. And this is my hope for you and our hope, I think, together. If you're a Demas and we mourn that that you've wandered into the world, but we've not given up hope. We're praying for the ability and the opportunity and the clarity to share the gospel with you. Demas is a warning that faithful relationships may end in heartbreak. And see 2 Timothy 4 while you're there. Look at verse 11. Look what he says. Luke alone is with me. The life of an apostle was a lonely life and a life full of suffering. And in fact... Paul, if you hold your spot in 2 Timothy, you'll see at the end of Colossians 4, he closes his letter by saying, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. My friends, there are brothers and sisters around the world who are undergoing intense suffering and persecution. That's not to downplay what we have to deal with here in the United States that is real and significant at times, but it's nothing compared to what, it's different compared to what other people around the world can have to deal with. Are we mindful of the chains of others, of the sufferings of others? As Christians, we should expect personal loss, heartbreak, and chains in our life. 
We should just go ahead and expect this to come. Paul would write elsewhere that anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. No exceptions, no little asterisks down at the bottom. Everyone who desires to live a godly life for Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Even living as prayerful, wise, salty servants, we need to be mindful that it will not come without personal suffering. See, Jesus was all those things, and look what they did to him. Jesus was wise, salty, a servant, holy in every way. And friends, you may have everyone in your life let you down, but Jesus is a friend like what we're seeing in Colossians 4. You will not perfectly live this text out, but Jesus has. (laughs) That's the kind of friend Jesus is. He's someone who's mindful of our sufferings and our chains. Friends, he knows what it's like to be deserted and backstabbed by a friend. He knows it intimately. He knows, and and he's careful to prod us when we start to love the world. He's one who models servanthood because he died on a cross for us out of his sheer love and grace. He was a perfect example of being salty in his speech, wise in his life, and ceaseless in prayers. Your friends and neighbors will let you down, but Jesus is a perfect friend. John 15, verse 13 Jesus tells us, what does friendship look like? And he says this, greater love knows no one than this, than someone who would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus has loved you and laid down his life for you. Just as you would dive into traffic to save someone you love, Jesus has dove down from heaven and was crushed underneath the weight of sin and death in order to rescue you. What greater love has anyone than this? then he should lay down his life for his friend. We should consider for ourselves first, what kind of friends are we? Do we model Jesus by being prayerful in our posture, wise in our lives, salty in our speech, servants in our actions, and mindful of others? How are we doing as a crossroads family doing this? Christian friends are a gift from God, but hear me. There's no friend like Jesus. People in these walls, if you're new or you're wanting to get plugged in or whatever, someone here is going to let you down. I might even let you down. I probably, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I probably will let you down at some point, just putting it out there. But what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. And what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. He's not just a friend who's loved us with a death-destroying love, but he also promises to be with us. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've placed your faith in Christ and are trusting him today, no matter what your relationships with others might look like, you are not alone. Even the Apostle Paul, writing from prison, knew that as great as this earthly friends were, he knew his best friend was with him in the cell. That the one who drank the very wrath of hell for him wouldn't leave him alone in his earthly suffering. Look back at 2 Timothy 4 again. Some of the last words recorded of Paul. And he was reflecting on a time when when he was alone and all deserted him. And look what he said. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. As everyone deserted you, Paul says, the Lord will stand by you. 
He'll strengthen you. God wasn't done with him. He stood by him, he said, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Ultimately, Jesus is the kind of friend who will never leave us. He's the kind of friend who's going to bring us home all the way through the thorns of life and over to his heavenly house for dinner. Jesus is going to bring his followers and his friends over for an earthly get-together, that, for a heavenly get-together, that all earthly get-togethers are simply meant to point us toward. Is Jesus your friend today? Do you know him? Do you trust him? By faith, you can know this Jesus who will not let you go. And if you're trusting Jesus, we can rejoice in having a friend who never fails. And how but to make us faithful friends. Paul prays in 2 Timothy 4.18. He praises God saying, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safe into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand together and let's pray. Jesus, you are unlike anybody on this earth. You love us. You're gracious to us. You've given your life that we might know you and love you and be set right with you. You were buried in a borrowed tomb, betrayed by your friends and left by all those who claim to love you. Buried in a tomb, but you rose again on the third day to offer us everlasting life. And to offer us a community of faith that we could love and grow in and make mistakes in and forgive one another in. I pray today for those who are here this morning who do not know you, asking that today they would encounter you right in this moment. They could call upon you right where they are and say, Jesus, save me. Come be with me in this hour. And by faith embrace all you've done through your death, burial, and resurrection. But for, the, for, those, of, for those of us who've done that, I ask that you'd help us to be better friends, better neighbors. Better, better companions together as we live as people under your lordship. I ask that you would be honored as we worship together. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.